There's a great vastness of vision that flows from the Buddha's enlightenment. He spoke of beings wandering over countless lifetimes through many planes of existence. He spoke of innumerable world systems, you know, and really unimaginable immensities of time. And at the heart of this huge vision of samsara, the cycle of life and death and rebirth, at the heart of it all lies the possibility of awakening. Probably not many of us have space traveled through these other realms. But there's another way of understanding the vastness of this Dharma journey that doesn't have to do with you know, this cosmic travel. And that is the investigation or the deepening understanding of the nature of consciousness itself, of opening to the mystery of awareness. What is this mind? How suffering is created? This we can see for ourselves, and the possibility of freedom. And the investigation is not a theoretical one. It's not you know, a study of Buddhist philosophy. We want to investigate investigate these questions in the reality of our moment-to-moment experience. All of the different Buddhist traditions, whether it's in the Theravada schools, the Mahayana or the Vajrayana, there are many different Buddhist traditions and schools with some different metaphysics and a lot of different views about things. But all of the schools converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind, what liberates the heart. And the Buddha expressed it very succinctly. We find it often in the Pali Canon. He said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself. Namely, liberation (coughs) through non-clinging. Liberation through non-clinging. In another place, he said, this is the deathless. Namely, liberation through non-clinging. Centuries later, one of the great Indian adepts, Talopa, who was the teacher of Naropa, who was the teacher of Marpa, who was the teacher of Milarepa, and so the whole Tibetan lineage, he expressed this same teaching in other words. So Talopa said to Naropa, you are not fettered by appearances. That is, you are not fettered by the experience. You are fettered by attachments. So cut your attachments. It's the same teaching, liberation through non-clinging. And more recently, a yogi, in these times, in an interview, expressed it in, with a wonderful image. This yogi came in an interview and said, you know, his wonderful insight, that suffering is rope burn. 
you know what rope burn is? If you know if a rope is being pulled through your hand, and if we're holding on to the rope tightly, but it's being pulled inexorably, what's going to happen? There's going to be rope burn. Suffering is rope burn. Liberation through non-clinging. Now I think for all of us it's important to realize that non-clinging is not some state to imagine in the far-off future. So it's not that, well, maybe we'll practice for 20 years and then we won't cling. It's really to realize that non-clinging is our practice now. It's our practice in each moment. And all of the techniques, all of the methods, all of the teachings are in the service of not clinging. As you know very well, after all these weeks of practice, our experience keeps changing. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. But the practice of liberation is always the same. One of the hardest things to realize and to to deeply understand in oneself is that we are not practicing for some special experience. We're not practicing to have some better or nicer or more wonderful you know, meditative state. However wonderful that state might be. We're practicing for what the Buddha called the heart's release. And so it's realizing over and over again that freedom, and freedom now, freedom in this moment, is in the non-grasping mind. So that's what we're practicing. The question then is, how can we accomplish this? How can we put this non-grasping mind into practice? One very powerful way, one powerful doorway into this place of non-clinging is the awareness of impermanence. When we pay attention, when we're really carefully looking at our experience, we see impermanence on every single level that we can attend to. If you want to think of the most macroscopic elements, the, the birth and death of galaxies, the birth and death of stars, down to the energy movements or whatever subatomic particles do. You know, but there's movement, there's energy, there's change. There's nothing that is static. You know, we see it in all the changes of nature, the changes of the seasons, the changes of the weather each day. We see it in the changes that happen in our relationships with other people. And we know this. If we pay attention, we see it. It's so obvious that none of our relationships with anybody are static. We see impermanence in our work. We see impermanence in our bodies very clearly. And we see impermanence moment to moment in our minds. 
What's so strange is that we know this intellectually, but very often we're not highlighting, we're not illuminating this very direct insight, which is so obvious, you know, wherever we look. Years ago, I was teaching at this uh, wilderness ranch in New Mexico for environmental activists. And I was way out in the Carson National Forest. And after the retreat, we went for a hike. And on the way back, I was hiking along the, the river. And it had just rained, and the rocks were slippery. And I slipped on a rock, and I hyperextended my knee. And I, I knew something not good had happened. But I was able to walk back, and then that night, I was giving the last Dharma talk. And I had this thought, I had this intuition, don't give it cross-legged, you know, sit in a chair. But I overrode that great moment of intuitive wisdom. (laughs) And I sat cross-legged, and at the end of the talk, I couldn't get up. You know, I was just... People had to carry me back to where I was staying. And my mind, this was at the end of a retreat, I had a busy summer schedule, you know, I was be teaching in Europe and different places in the States, and my mind vacillated between two, uh, two moods, two reflections. One, I started going down the road of totally berating myself for being so stupid. You know, okay, I slipped, but then why didn't I pay attention to that voice in my mind, and how could I have done that? It's going to really screw up the whole summer. And so that was one avenue. But then I saw what my mind was doing. I said, this is not helpful. So then I went down the other avenue, reflecting on the truth of changing conditions. And I came up with a mantra at that time that has really served me, and I think it can serve all of you as well. Because I use it a lot. And that is, anything can happen anytime. Anything can happen anytime because conditions are changing. And when I remind myself of that, it's not depressing. When that comes to mind, anything can happen anytime, it doesn't bring about a sense of dread. Rather, when I remind myself of that, I notice this amazing relaxation in my mind. Because instead of living defensively or in fear, or it's settling back into the understanding into the acceptance of the truth of things. Things are changing. So it's not a mistake that things happen. It's just how things are. Now one of the strongest aspects of our delusion, and of course delusion can take many forms, but one of the strongest aspects of it is that when we look back at our own experience, we know so well, we can see so clearly, that it's all like a dream. From the past moment, something that happened a moment ago, or five minutes ago, or a year ago, or ten years ago, where is it now? So we see that, we know that, and yet when we look ahead to what may be arising, 
we get enthralled by all the possibilities that await us. You know, as if some new experience is magically going to be fulfilling, will fulfill all our longings. You know, just the next thing will finally make us happy. Why we think that? Given everything that has happened until this point is a bit of a mystery. And yet we do. We just fall into this illusion, waiting for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, forgetting that it's all just part of a passing show. Through a direct and intimate, clear experience of impermanence, of seeing it directly, reflecting on it, that whatever arises, whatever it is, in the body, in the mind, in the world, in the galaxy, in the wherever, whatever arises will also pass away. You know, it's like the current of a river or water over a waterfall. That's how fast experience is changing. When we really see it, you know, in the moment and reflect on it and acknowledge it and illuminate this truth of impermanence, slowly we loosen the grip of attachment and clinging. So it's a very powerful insight. It really transforms the way we are relating to our lives. The power of seeing the truth of impermanence was expressed in one very startling teaching of the Buddha, where he said, it's better to live a single day seeing the momentary rise and fall of experience than to live a hundred years without seeing it. And just think what that means. Here's the Buddha, he's making a comment then about everything we value in our lives about the choices we make, about what we think is important. He's saying it's better to live a single day to see the rising and falling in this momentary way of experience than to live a hundred years doing whatever else we do without seeing it. That's how important it is. Because it's through the seeing of that that we actually begin to decondition the grasping mind, the clinging mind. So we need to see and reflect, what does this say about what we value? You know, and what we work for in our lives. I'd like to read something to you. It's a dialogue that the great Tibetan yogi Shabkar had with a flower. And this flower, this is a very wise flower. Okay, so it's a little long. So settle into the mountains of Tibet. Okay, so this is Shabkar uh, speaking. So another day I went out for some fresh air to a meadow covered with flowers. 
I was singing the song which Talopa used to teach the great pundit Naropa. While singing and remaining in a state of awareness, I noticed among the profusion of flowers spread out before me one particular flower waving gently on its long stem and giving out a sweet fragrance. As it swayed from side to side, I heard this song in the rustling of its petals. This is the song of the flower, an offering. My father and mother are the sky and the earth. I am the child nurtured by warmth and moisture. See how beautifully I display my fine petals, waving them in the ten directions. They are my offering to the three jewels. Listen to me, O mountain dweller. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but in fact you even lack awareness of impermanence and death, let alone any realization of emptiness. For those with such awareness of impermanence and death, out of phenomena all teach about change. Neither flower will now give you, the yogi, a little bit of helpful advice. A flower born in a meadow, I enjoy perfect happiness with my brightly colored petals in full bloom. Surrounded by an eager cloud of bees, I dance gaily, swaying gently with the wind. When a fine rain falls, my petals wrap around me. When the sun shines, I open like a smile. Right now, I look well enough, but I won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome frost will dull these vivid colors till turning brown I wither. Thinking of this, I am disturbed. Later still, winds, violent, merciless, will tear me apart until I turn to dust. You, hermit, are of the same nature. Surrounded by a host of disciples, you enjoy a fine complexion. Your body of flesh and blood is full of life. And when others praise you, you dance with joy. When faithful patrons turn up, you sit in a dignified manner. When they shower you with lavish food, you smile with satisfaction. Right now you look well enough, but you won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome aging will steal away your healthy vigor, and your hair will whiten, and your back will grow bent. When touched by the merciless hands of illness and death, you will leave this world for the next life. Since you, mountain-roaming hermit, and I, a mountain-born flower, our mountain friends, I have offered you these words of good advice. Then the flower fell silent and remained still. In reply I sang, O brilliant, exquisite flower, your discourse on impermanence is wonderful indeed, but what shall the two of us do? Is there nothing that can't be done? Is there nothing that can be done? And the flower replied, I make this offering to the infallible three jewels. We too must now do as I say. Among all the activities of samsara, there is not one thing that is lasting. Whatever is born will die. Whatever is joined will come apart. Whatever is gathered will disperse. Whatever is high will fall. Having considered this, I resolve not to be attached to these lush meadows even now in the full glory of my display, even as my petals unfold in splendor. You too, while strong and fit, should abandon your clinging, meditate in solitude, 
Seek the pure field of freedom, the great serenity. I pray that you may swiftly encounter the pure realms. It's quite a flower. (laughs) You know, when we open our eyes, the truth of this is so obvious. So we need to really practice seeing it. So it's not just conceptual. It's not that we're just you know, not in agreement. Yeah, that sounds right. But we are, we're really seeing it in the moment. As you practice, you know, in addition to being aware of what's arising in the moment, you know, whether it's a breath or a sound or a sensation, whatever it may be, a thought, also pay attention to what happens to that arising experience. Really highlight the awareness of its changing nature. We can see sounds disappearing, sensations changing, thoughts coming and going. And then notice the quality of your mind in the moment of seeing the change. Because I think you will recognize and appreciate in that moment of illuminating the fleeting, changing, impermanent nature of whatever is arising, if you notice the quality of your mind in the seeing of impermanence, I think you will recognize the mind of no clinging. And so we get familiar with it, we get comfortable with it, we come to trust it. If we are interested in liberation, if we are interested in freedom, the Buddha gave very explicit advice. So it's not a mystery. This path of liberation, of awakening, is not a mystery. And this is the great power and beauty of the Buddhist teachings is very, very direct. He said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. And when not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. Everything we do in our practice, using coming back to the primary object, mental noting, deepening concentration, open choiceless awareness, all of these different tools and all of these different methods, are all in the service of the mind of no clinging. The Buddha is known as the great compassionate one. And out of great compassion, in case we still don't get it, even though it's really clear, he's saying it 
so directly. He goes on to point out where we habitually do cling. So he's kind of directing our attention to those areas so we can really look and see, okay, well, where are these habits of clinging that we get seduced by over and over again? We cling, the first area, the first arena, which is very obvious, we cling to the pleasures of the senses. We like, we enjoy sense pleasures of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and pleasant sensations in the body and pleasant mind states. And so we get caught by the wanting mind, the mind wanting these pleasant feelings. Instead of contemplating the impermanence of the feelings, the relinquishing, the letting go, we go after the pleasant feeling, forgetting that they're just part of the passing show. We get lost you know, in our desire for pleasant sense experience. We get lost in the pleasantness of you know, mental reverie. How many hours have you spent you know, sitting in this hall Maybe not all at once, but you know the accumulation of just the mind being lost, being carried away in reverie, because on some level it's enjoyable. Well, that was a pleasant hour. You know, it went fast, didn't hurt too much. And even when our thoughts or images or these reveries, even when they're not pleasant, we seem to enjoy the dubious pleasure of simply being lost. You know, and so we just in some way are attached to that. When we investigate our attachment to pleasant sense experience in, in meditation, it reveals so much about the power of fascination, the power of addiction, which plays itself out so often in our lives. Now this is a powerful force. And we can begin to see, we do see, in our meditation practice, how it plays out. Now sometimes I imagine my meditation you know, it's, it's as if I'm going down, just rolling along a highway, you know, and everything's going smoothly, and I'm just, you know, with the breath and with sensations. And then there's like a big billboard advertising an amusement park down the next exit. And we all have our own amusement parks, you know, of what particularly interests us. So this big kind of billboard comes up, mine goes down that exit. We spend however long we do on the roller coaster, you know, and then come back down the highway again. As the mindfulness gets stronger, we get a little quicker. You know, so maybe we don't spend quite as long in our distraction. 
And maybe with increased awareness, we become aware. We take the exit, we go down a little bit, but we hardly spend any time at all before we get back on the highway. When the mind is really quick, maybe we don't even get off the exit. You know, we see the image, we see the thought arising in the mind, but we're really there for it, and we're not seduced. One note that I have found exceedingly helpful in reminding the mind to just stay on the highway is right at the beginning of the exit ramp there can be a big sign, dead end. Because these exits are not going anyplace. You know, we get, we get pulled off into some thought, into some reverie, into some wanting, into some desire, whatever. It doesn't go anyplace. It doesn't lead anyplace. Sooner or later, we just have to come back. Get back on the, get back on the road. When I can see the dead end sign, then I'm reminded, I don't have to do this. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not onward leading in any way. So it's, it's a very helpful reminder. Did that particularly, I mean, can do it with any kind of seduction, but it was, it was very helpful, particularly helpful with sensual desire, sexual desire, you know, fantasies arising in the mind. Dead end. Especially in the context of the precepts here. <laughs> I mean, it really isn't going anyplace. <laughs> so why bother? Okay. Another, another example of this clinging to sense pleasure, this wanting mind, this, this kind of a metaphor I've used often uh, over these last years, because it's so, such a strong conditioning we have in our minds. It's what I call catalog consciousness. You know, do you know the experience? You'll have to remember it you know, from before you came here. But you, know, you get these endless catalogs in the mail and you make the mistake of even opening them. And then you just start turning the pages waiting for something to want. It's like we're wanting to want. There may be nothing in that catalog that is of any interest at all. Maybe I'll want something on the next page. And it's, you know, what is our mind doing? Often we become so focused on the object of our desire that we forget that what the mind is really interested in is the pleasant feeling associated with it. It's not so much the object that we want. It's the pleasant feeling that we think we're going to get when we have it. It's very helpful to make that distinction because the object often feels so solid you know, and fulfilling. But the pleasant feeling, when we reflect that's really what we're after, it's much easier to remember and recognize the fleeting nature of the pleasant feeling. 
know, you go back for seconds at lunch, and you think it's the food that you want. It's not the food. It's the pleasant, it's the anticipated pleasant feeling. But if we remember, oh yeah, that's what we're after, it's easier to remember that pleasant feeling is so ephemeral. You know, it lasts for about two and a half seconds. And when we see that, when we remember that, we're not so driven. Now, all of this doesn't mean that we don't enjoy pleasant feelings as they come. You know, whether we don't act in the world. We can be present in a very full and a very open way, but without desire, without wanting, becoming the driving force in our lives. In addition to pleasant sense experience, and perhaps in these days, this is even more applicable, we get attached, we start clinging to pleasant meditative experiences. They're more seductive. You know, we have a taste of maybe a certain lightness in the mind or body or calm or peace or happiness or joy. And that can be very, at times, very pleasurable feelings that come. But all of these at a certain point, even the factors of enlightenment, you know, the very states we're cultivating, at a certain point in practice, are actually called corruptions of insight. Why? Because we get attached to them. We forget what is the path and what is not the path, you know, and then we're just going for these states. At one point in my practice in Burma, I'd been there for a couple of months, I had spent weeks in some pretty hard times, you know, just kind of struggling, a lot of unpleasantness in the body. It's like, I, it just felt like work. It was really working. Uh, not, not an easy time. And finally, after weeks and weeks, you know, of this kind of effortful practice, finally my mind just kind of dropped into this, you know, ease and rhythm, and it was effortless, and the whole body and mind felt great. I went and reported this to Upandita, and he just listened. And then I went back the second day, and I reported it. I reported it the third day, and he said, haven't you enjoyed this long enough? <laughs> and I thought, three days? I spent weeks, <laughs> you know, struggling. <laughs> but it was very helpful, because... The happy states in meditation, even though they come, they're really not the point. The point is non-grasping. The point is liberation through non-clinging. We need to hear that again and again and again because these states are so seductive. We begin to practice for them. Sometimes we can have a very compelling fascination, not just with pleasant meditative states, but with the unfolding process itself. You know, we get pulled into the fascination and interest into how it's all unfolding. 
And this can happen on a psychological and emotional level, as we're kind of unwinding all of that, and we just get pulled into the story of that and fascinated with how it's going to unfold. Or the same thing can happen just on a very momentary level. We're practicing what I call in order to. You know, we're practicing, we're there in this moment in order for the next thing to happen. That's a leaning forward. That's a kind of grasping. That's a kind of wanting. At one point when I was very much doing that, where, where my mind was just getting so uh, interested in you know, the minutest details of how this whole mind-body process was unfolding, Upandita, in an interview, said, Joseph, you're too attached to subtlety. You know, and it was a great, it was a great uh, interview. Because I hadn't even realized that my mind was, okay, what more can I see? What more? Instead of being there in a full way, remembering that the practice is about non-grasping, non-clinging, letting go. Okay, there's another little mantra here that I'd like you to repeat a hundred thousand times. <laughs> it doesn't matter to what we don't cling. It's a little awkward grammatically. <laughs> but it doesn't matter to what we don't cling which means that we don't have to wait for a special experience to come in order to then not cling. Which I think is a lot of what we do. Well, I'll practice, 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 and then I won't cling. It doesn't matter to what we don't cling. We cannot cling now. We don't have to wait. (laughs) This is very important. Because when we really understand this, we're not postponing this possibility of freedom. Okay, so we can get attached, we can cling to sense pleasures, to meditative experiences, to the process itself, to the unfolding process. The second arena of strong attachment in our lives is attachment to views and opinions. We have so many views and opinions about things and we get attached to them. We get attached to being right. We often have strong views and opinions about things we know nothing about. But it does not stop us from having them and holding them very dearly and tightly. One story which just illustrates it, this is from years and years ago when I first was teaching at Naropa Institute. This was in 74. I had been practicing for years in India, you know, in the Theravada tradition, and then I was at Naropa, the Tibetan uh, Trungpa's Institute, when he first opened, and 
In one of those years, uh, Dujam Rinpoche was coming, and he's one of the great masters, one of the great lineage holders uh, in Tibetan Buddhism. And on the poster announcing his talk, they said, Dujam Rinpoche, incarnation of Sariputra. Sariputra was the chief disciple of the Buddha. From the Burmese viewpoint, Theravada viewpoint, no way Sariputra came back. You know, when you're enlightened, you're off the wheel of rebirth. And this, I mean, there's no doubt about that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On the one hand. On the other hand, here was this post, Dujam Rinpoche. I mean, he was really one of the great enlightened beings. Incarnation of Sariputra. Well, when I saw this, it's like my mind kind of went on tilt. You know, how to hold two completely opposing views. Well, I had a little satori, you know, in that tilt state. And that is, I realized that I actually didn't have a clue. (laughs) I mean, I didn't know whether he was the incarnation of Sariputra or not. I knew what the Theravadan said, and I knew what the poster said. And it was such a relief. It really, to let go of my opinion about something I really didn't know. So I recommend that don't know mine to you. It's very freeing. You know, then, then we're just open to possibilities. You know, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. We don't know. It's also helpful to let go of views and opinions about things that we might actually have some knowledge about, or even about insights that we've had. It's very easy to develop a certain kind of pride, a spiritual pride in knowledge, you know, a spiritual pride about what we've experienced. And this attachment can close us off to other points of view. You know, then, we, then we just start living in this very enclosed little belief system. And we see the tremendous danger of this in the world today. You know, and the kind of strong sectarian beliefs. People are very attached to these beliefs, particularly to religious beliefs. You know, and all the violence that has come out of that attachment. The Buddha very explicitly warned against this tendency to exalt our own view of things and to disparage the views of others. And he talked of this attachment to view, he expressed it as you know, the, the sense that this is truth, all else is falsehood. You know, when we have that stance in our minds, that's, that's a signal that there's attachment to view here. And it's not that we disregard you know, or, or don't acknowledge the experiences that we had and the understandings that we have, but can we hold it lightly and stay open to other points of view, other possibilities? There's attachment to sense pleasures, this clinging to sense pleasures, the wanting mind, 
clinging to meditative experience, this clinging to the unfolding process, clinging to subtlety, clinging to views, clinging to opinions about things we know, things we don't know. Third great attachment and area of clinging, and in some way it's the deepest attachment we have that conditions our lives, is the clinging and attachment to the concept of self. Now we've created this idea, this concept, we've created a reference point of being to whom or to which all experience refers. You know, and so every experience we have always refers back to this notion of self, to this notion of I. And of course the great liberating jewel of the Buddhist teachings is a deepening understanding of the selfless nature of this mind-body process. There'll be more talks about this great teaching of anatta, but tonight I just want to briefly touch on some of the ways that we create this felt sense of I. How does it come about? If the self is a concept, is a fabrication, why do we feel so strongly as if there is an I, there is a self? This feeling of self arises in all of those moments when we identify with the various arising experiences. So, for example, we identify strongly with the body. And we take this body to be self. You know, when we look at the body, you know, it just changes from baby, infant, you know, and a baby, and a young person, and a teenager, and young adult, and middle age, and old person, and corpse. Which one is the self? Or which, which can we say, oh yeah, this is I, this is me. It's constantly changing. I had a friend who had laparoscopic surgery for a fibroid tumor. You know, and they go in this very small incision with a laser uh, and a, a miniaturized video camera. And so that's the surgeon is actually watching the video screen you know, as the laser is cutting away uh, the tumor. Well, she had the surgery and then as a reward she got the video. She had no interest in watching it, interest in watching it but I did. You know, so I slip it into the VCR, and it's amazing because it's really a journey inside of the body. You're inside of it. You know, and you see all the organs and the blood and the tissue and just everything, and it's such an eye opener. When we see the body from that perspective, we're not so likely. To think of the gallbladder as being self, you know, or the liver, you know, this, oh yeah, that's me, that's who I am, you know, or the intestines, or the, but it's so remarkable, we just wrap it all up nicely in skin, yes, that's me. It's just packaged. And if we open the package, 
I think we'd be much less likely to identify with it. So we need to see, we need to see deeply. Okay, well, what is this that we're calling self, that we're calling I? It's because of a superficial perception. We create a felt sense of self, and this is something you'll be very familiar with, when we identify with thoughts. You know, with all of the myriad thoughts that are arising, if we're lost in them, if we're identified with them, there's the strong sense, I'm thinking. You know, I'm planning, I'm judging, I'm remembering. Or when we identify with the stories we make up about experience, about ourselves or others. How many stories have you had about other yogis here? And there may be people you don't even know. You know, but all kinds of stories. <laughs> Mostly we are living in the world of our mental projections. You know, we see that in all the many thoughts we have about ourselves, about other people, about the world. We're just creating these stories, getting lost in them, not seeing that they are just thoughts. It's very helpful to look directly at the nature of thought. Because when they're unnoticed, when we're unaware, when we're lost in them, they have tremendous power, they are compelling, they are coercive. When we're unaware of them, they are like these little dictators in the mind, driving us nuts. And yet when we are aware of them, and this is what's so amazing, when we are aware of them, we see that they really are little more than nothing. There's not much there. And so we can look very directly, and we have endless opportunities to do it, to really look not into the content of thought, but into the nature of thought. What is a thought? Kenzi Rinpoche, who was one of the really great Tibetan masters, uh, he wrote, Thoughts have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thought should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be so enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly, as they have been doing throughout countless lifetimes. So we have this amazing opportunity, you know, over and over again, just to be mindful as thoughts arise, to bring that interest, that investigation of what is the nature of this thought, not getting caught in the story, not getting caught in the content, it's really irrelevant. We want to see the emptiness of it all. And then they will no longer have the power to disturb us. There's a felt sense of self when we're identified with the body, when we're identified with the thoughts. 
strong felt sense of I when we're identified with emotions. You know, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm depressed, I'm bored. We just add the I to it. Instead of seeing the emotion as a state of mind arising out of changing conditions. Instead of seeing the momentariness of the emotions, we build this whole superstructure of self on top of them. And then we get lost, and then we get conditioned by these emotions. One point I was teaching in Texas with Sharon, uh, and it was a time when I was going through a lot of fear in my practice. It was a whole fear stage. And I was building this whole story about myself, you know, of just what a fearful person I was and how conditioned it was and how I was going to need 30 years of therapy to unwind it. And I was just going on and on and on. And at a certain point she just turned to me and she said, Joseph, it's only a mind state. And you know how sometimes it's just the right moment to hear something? Well, that was the moment. It's just a mind state. It's just arising out of conditions, passing away when the conditions change. It may come again. That's fine. If we can see it for what it is, if we can see this certain transparency, the emptiness of self of the emotions... But it's difficult because emotions are what we often most personalize. Our practice is to see, to pay attention. Emotions are rising out of conditions just like clouds form in the sky. They're cloud formations. Conditions change, the emotions change. The most subtle form of identification, kind of the the core of selfhood is, comes about through our identification with awareness itself, with consciousness. Even as we know that the body changes and sensations and thoughts and even emotions are coming and going and changing phenomena, still we so often get caught in the sense, well, I'm the one knowing it all. And so we create this sense of the witness or the observer, separate from experience. Now, I think something I've mentioned over these weeks, but I'll just reiterate again, a useful tool for cutting through this identification with the knowing is framing the experience in the passive voice. For example the breath being known, a thought being known, a sound being known, a sensation being known. Because that linguistic construction takes the I out of it. So instead of I'm hearing, I'm thinking, I'm feeling, it's just moment after moment something else is being known. And in that way of framing it, we no longer are constructing the sense of I, the sense of self. And then we begin to explore the question, things being known, known by what? So we begin to look directly into the very nature of awareness.
Liberation through non-clinging. We accomplish this through seeing the impermanence, the momentariness of phenomena. In the moment of seeing impermanence, the mind is not grasping. Liberation through non-clinging, we experience it through a deepening understanding of selflessness, that all experience is just this flow of empty phenomena. As Munindraji used to say, empty phenomena rolling on. That's what this mind-body process is. There's no one behind it to whom it's happening. The Buddha summed all of this up in one great incisive teaching when he said nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. And whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. It's all contained within that. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is the Buddha's profound instruction to us. It's not a philosophic statement. He's showing us, he's telling us how to practice. And as we practice that, as we remember this in each moment, we are really practicing freedom in each moment. I'd just like to close with a few lines from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, which just is, a, is a wonderful expression of all this. And he wrote, A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. Liberation through non-clinging. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Sit for a couple of minutes. May the merit of our practice be joined with the merit of all the virtuous actions of the three times, past, present,
present, the future. Together may it be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings. <laughs>